Well, friends, do turn in your Bibles once again to Mark chapter 9, the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And as you're doing, I remind you that last week we studied verses 43 to 48. And in those verses, Jesus uses some strong words to tell us that we need to deal radically with sin and with the occasions of sin. He talks about cutting off your foot, cutting off your hand, and plucking out your eye if it offends. And he's talking spiritually about about sin that may offend, and we need to deal radically and ruthlessly with our sins. Now, as we studied that passage, there are only two verses left in the chapter, and they really fit with the context. And you may have asked, why didn't you just finish the chapter, Pastor? Why didn't you just tack on those two remaining verses? It would have made sense to do that. Well, the reason I didn't is because these are not easy verses to interpret, and I didn't want to just pass over them lightly. In fact, they're so difficult that some commentators don't even try to interpret. A man such as J.C. Ryle gives the options, and he says, we're going to have to wait till eternity to understand what these mean. Other commentators do interpret these verses, but they tend to vary in their interpretation. What do we do when we come to a passage that is not as clear as some others? Well, I suggest that we approach it humbly, And perhaps we're not as dogmatic as we are with other passages. But there are three basic principles of Bible study that I think can help us to make sense of this. And whether we nail it exactly or not, I know what I'm going to be bringing to you is biblical truth today. And those principles are these, the study of words. We need to study particular words and how they're used in the Bible. We need to compare Scripture with Scripture. This is sometimes called the analogy of faith. That sheds light on a passage by comparing this with other passages. And then understanding the context always helps in interpretation. So to set the stage for understanding these verses, I I have a couple of preliminary considerations. First, I want to unfold the biblical usage and significance of the term salt. Here is our text, verses 49 and 50. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Well, you don't have to be a great Bible scholar to understand that the theme of these verses is salt, right? Salt, salty, unsalt. And so it's clearly talking about salt. Well, if we're going to understand these verses, we need to understand something about the meaning and significance of salt in the Bible. First note that salt was plentiful to the Jews. They had plenty of salt from the Dead Sea. And by the way, you may know this, the Dead Sea is six times saltier than the ocean. I once, in the year I was converted, hitchhiked across the country to California to go to a Bible conference with a friend. And we stopped at, we just happened to pass through the Great Salt Lake in Utah. And we decided to venture into the water. And we literally walked in there, and we literally floated on our back. We had our Super 8 movie camera at the time, and we took uh, movies of us floating on our back, reading a magazine. You literally could not sink. It was so buoyant because of the, the density of the salt. Well, they had plenty of salt from the Dead Sea. There is a a place called the Hill of Salt, a 15-square-mile elevation on the southwest corner of the Dead Sea, And so salt was very very readily available. Salt factored significantly in the life of Mideastern, ancient Mideastern peoples. But how was salt used? Well, we do a word study on the word salt and discover 
what are the significances of salt in the Bible. First of all, salt was used as a food both for man and beast. For man, largely a seasoning. Job 6.6, can something tasteless be eaten without salt? So we use salt to season our food. It was also used as food for beasts. We read in Isaiah 30, 24, also the oxen and then donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder. Salt is necessary to our our diets. Salt is used for food. Salt is also used as a preservative for food. Remember how Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the salt of the earth. Salt prevents putrefaction. It keeps meat from rotting, and so salt is a preservative. Salt is also an antiseptic. In Ezekiel 16, when God is speaking about the formation of his people Israel under the imagery of birth, he says, as for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, you were not washed with water, and he says you were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. It was a practice to rub salt on young infants to, again, um, as an antiseptic to protect them from germs for their health. Um, in 2 Kings 2, Elisha purifies a polluted spring of water by throwing salt into it. And then he says, thus says the Lord, I have purified these waters. There shall not be from their death or unfruitfulness any longer. Salt was also used in sacrifices. Leviticus 2.13, every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt. And in other places, salt is used in conjunction with sacrifices. Again, the idea is purification. The sacrifice took away sin, and salt is a symbol of the removal of corruption and the purification brought about by the sacrifice that takes away sin. Closely related to that, salt was also used in the making of covenants. Ancient covenants were often sealed by a covenant meal at which salt was present. Salt becomes a symbol of the covenant bond between individuals. It spoke of a friendship and a loyalty. The expression, there is salt between us, or he has eaten of my salt, depicted such a bond. In Ezra 4.14, which providentially I just happened to read yesterday in my devotions, it says, now because we are in the service of the palace, literally we eat the salt of the palace, and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. They were loyal to the palace. They were devoted to the palace because they had eaten the salt of the palace. And so it speaks about a covenant bond. Again, it's preservative quality symbolizing the enduring nature of a covenant. But finally, not only was salt used for all of these positive purifying purposes, but salt also had a destructive use. Deuteronomy 29, 23, when God forecasts that he will bring judgment upon his disobedient people, Israel, he describes it this way. All its land is brimstone and salt, a burning waste, unsown and unproductive, and no grass grows on it. And when a king or a judge such as Abimelech fights against a city, we read in Judges 9, he captures the city, he raises it, he levels the city, and he sows it with salt. He puts salt on the ground so nothing will grow. It will be dead and unproductive. So as we study the meaning of salt in the Bible and its symbolic significance, I think it can help shed light on our text here, which is obviously using salt in a figurative way. What can we say? Positively, 
Salt symbolizes purification for the preservation of life. Does that follow? Salt is a symbol of purification for the preservation of life. It purifies food. It, it keeps meat from rotting. It kills germs and microbes uh, living on meat. It preserves the meat. Salt rubbed into onto a newborn is an antiseptic. It kills germs. Salt purifies water in Elisha's day. Uh, salt is a symbol of, of the purity of cleansing of sin in a sacrifice. And so salt symbolizes, on the one hand, purification unto the preservation of life. But negatively, salt brings sterilization unto the destruction of life. Remember that Deuteronomy 29 passage, when God judges his people, the land will be salt and burning, unproductive, lifeless. And when a conquering king conquers a land, raises the city, he puts salt on the ground, producing unproductiveness, destruction. And so positively, salt purifies to preserve life. Negatively, salt can sterilize and destroy life. Now, let's be reminded of the context of our passage here as we come to these two verses. Going back earlier in the passage, remember, the disciples are coming from Capernaum, and what are they talking about? Which one of them is the greatest? They're arguing, and that calls forth the rebuke from Jesus. And John remembers a time when they saw a man casting out demons in Jesus' name, and they tried to prevent him. Jesus has to correct, not the man, but he corrects them. And then in the immediate context, he's talking about, he's warning them that unless you're willing to deal radically with sin, cut off your hand, your foot, pluck out your eye, you will be in danger of hell. Not only must you not cause others to stumble, you must not be a stumbling block to yourself by tolerating and allowing sin in your life. Now that's the backdrop to our text. Jesus is dealing with his disciples who are being carnal, careless, ungracious in their behavior. They're being proud. They're offending and they're in danger of perhaps behavior that, in principle, could land them in hell. And then we have our text, where everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Okay, now we're coming to our outline, but don't worry. We'll get you out in time for lunch. But now our outline. The first thing I want us to see is the inevitability and universality of salting. Look at the text. It simply says, for everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone, that's universality, will be, that's inevitability. Everyone, whatever it means, everyone will be salted with fire. So it's universal. Now let's consider, if that's everyone, let's consider believers. How will believers, most of us here, if not all of us, most of us, how will we be salted with fire? Well, I submit to you, based on our study, that believers will be salted with the fire of purification. Can the ideas of salt and fire be brought together in a constructive way that applies to believers? I think so. 
Remember how we saw that salt is generally purifying. It generally has a, has a good purpose. It purifies meat and, and water. It kills germs. And, and it's a, a picture of an acceptable sacrifice, purified and devoted to God, symbolically purging all that is corrupt. In fact, the King James Bible has a phrase that is not in the modern translations, and there are textual variants here. The King James has, for everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Now, if that was in the original text, that tells us something more of what Jesus is saying. He's referring to um, every sacrifice being salted with salt. He's talking about believers being an acceptable sacrifice to God by means of that salt. Even if that's not the original text, at least a scribe sought to add it with perhaps an attempt to explain what Jesus meant. And so it has in in view God rendering his people a pleasing sacrifice to himself. So salt predominantly has this constructive purpose. It purges, it purifies, it preserves. And I'm saying that's the purpose in the life of the believer. Salt preserves the believer. Now, what about fire? It says they shall be salted with fire. When fire is spoken of relative to the believer, what is it referring to? Again, it's referring to purification. You know these verses, 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. God tests our faith by putting us through fiery trials. Again, like the hymn says, not to burn us up, but to burn off the sin, to burn up the dross. 1 Peter 4.12, later in that letter, written to suffering saints, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing. And as we read this morning from Isaiah 43, when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. So what do the words mean? Everyone will be salted with fire when it comes to the believer. It means that God will bring fiery trials into our lives, not to harm us, but to purify us to burn off, as it were, the germs, the microbes of sin in our lives. And can you see how this fits in the context? Uh, Here, he's talking about sacrificing eyes, hands, and feet as occasions for sin. And he's saying that sin needs to be dealt with radically in order for us to be fit for heaven. Heaven is a holy place. Hell is an unholy place. Sin is unholy. So if we're going to escape hell and go to heaven, we need to be purged of our sin. How is that accomplished? Well, first of all, it's accomplished through Jesus. Jesus was, we might say, was salted with the fire of God's wrath upon the cross. But because he was sinless, he became an acceptable sacrifice to God so that through him, We can be an acceptable sacrifice to God because Jesus, as it were, was salted with the fire of God's wrath and was punished for our sins. But after we come to Jesus and after we are justified and cleansed, God is not finished with us. We still have remaining sin. And how does God purge us and purify us of that sin? 
He salts us with the fire of purification. He brings trials into our lives intended to burn off the dross of sin, not to hurt us, not to burn us, but to burn off the sin. So what should we do with that reality? Well, first of all, I think we can say that as believers, we should expect trials and difficulties in our lives as coming from the hand of God. And this is promised to us. When Saul was converted, some of God's words to him in Acts chapter 9 are these, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. It goes with the territory of being a disciple. In Acts 14.22, with very new believers, Paul and Barnabas, strengthened the souls of the disciples and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It goes with the territory of being a believer. To the Thessalonians, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3.3, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So we should expect that we will have trials, we will have difficulties in the Christian life as coming from the hand of God. But we need to view these trials not as aimed to harm us, but to purify us. Even as it says in 1 Peter 1.9, we go through the fire to burn off the dross. The flame will not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and your gold to refine. There's kind of a parallel to our discipline of our children, right? We believe in the rod because the Bible teaches it. But by the rod, we never intend to harm our children. Do we inflict pain on them? Yes, it's supposed to hurt as a deterrent to sin. But it does them no harm. It does them good. It's, it's foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. And so we use the rod not to harm our children, but to war against the sin that will harm them. And so God loves us, and so he brings us through fiery trials, not to harm us, but to harm the sin that will do us harm and to burn off the dross. And we need to do as James says. When we have these trials, we need to embrace them as from God. And James even says with joy, James 1, 2, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Most of the time we're facing trials in the Christian life, and you are no doubt facing trials now. Like I said, it may be the trial of, of wrestling with your own remaining sin and the temptations that are around you. It may be some relational trial, a difficult person in your life. It may be a circumstantial trial, financial trial. We can expect these, they come from the hand of God, maybe from the devil immediately, but ultimately it comes from the hand of your father. And it's only to burn off the dross of sin, not to harm you. Embrace it, don't fight against it. But then if everyone will be salted with salt, that includes not only believers, but unbelievers. So for believers, they will be salted with the fire of purification or in order for their preservation. But unbelievers will be salted with the fire of damnation. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 23, the negative use of salt. That salt is, along with brimstone, a burning waste 
unsown. It creates unsown, unproductive ground. Salt and burning are brought together in a negative way, symbols of death and destruction and anger and wrath. And when you think of fire in regard to a believer, it's a purifying fire. But when we think of fire with regard to the unbeliever, it is the fire of God's wrath. Right here in our text, we talk, it's talking about the unquenchable fire of Gehenna, hell, where the worm, the maggot never dies and the fire is never quenched. And in many other places, you know, in the parables of Jesus, they talk about the tares being thrown in, in, into the fire. Many places, fire is a picture of the eternal destiny of the lost, the ultimate destiny of lost people as well as Satan and his demons, is a lake of fire, as it is so called. And so even as believers will be salted with the fire of purification for our good, unbelievers will be salted with the fire of damnation. And salted with fire is an appropriate description of the life of the unbeliever, which is a wasteland which is an unproductive, unsown life. Think about it. We were made by God, and we were made for God, weren't we? We were made to know God, to love God, to obey God, to serve God, to enjoy God and glorify him forever. And if one never comes to know God and enjoy God and glorify God, one is not fulfilling the purpose for which he or she was made. And it doesn't matter what a person accomplishes in this life, how much wealth they accrue, how much power they attain to, or prestige, or success, or fame, or whatever mark they make on history, what can be written over their life, the caption is, vanity, futility, unproductive, a waste. Because they've never fulfilled the purpose for which they were made. And their eternal destiny will be in an eternal wasteland, separated from God, where there's nothing good, nothing productive. Everything is desolate and barren. That's what it means to be salted with the fire of damnation. A worthless, useless life lived apart from God now, and then a life lived apart from God in an eternity of suffering in Gehenna or hell. Matthew Henry says, those that present not themselves living sacrifices to God's grace shall be made forever dying sacrifices to his justice. And since they would not give honor to him, he will get, get himself honor upon them. They would not be salted with the salt of divine grace. They would not submit to the operation, could not bear the corrosives that were necessary to eat out the proud flesh. It was to them like cutting off a hand or plucking out an eye. And therefore in hell they shall be salted with fire. Coals of fire shall be scattered upon them as salt upon the meat and brimstone as fire and brimstone were, a, were rained on Sodom. If anybody here is an unbeliever, let me just remind you that you will be salted with fire, not the fire of preservation, but the fire of eternal damnation. But it doesn't have to be so. God so loved a world of rebellious sinners such as we all were that he sent his son Jesus. And Jesus was salted, as it were, with the fire 
of God's wrath, the fire of damnation when he died upon the cross, not for his own sins, but for our sins. He was salted with fire, so suffered abandonment and uh, from God the Father because he was bearing the sins of his people upon himself so that in him we could become an acceptable sacrifice to God. You don't have to suffer being salted with the fire of damnation. You can become a child of God and have heaven as your eternal destiny. There's an illustration. I know I've given it before, but I'll, it's appropriate here. I'm told that out west where there are these prairie fires that sweep relentlessly down the prairie and they're inescapable, the way that people escape the raging prairie fire is they burn around their home. They burn the area around their home so that when the fire sweeps down, it doesn't burn where it's already burned. It burns around and they are safe. We can look at Jesus as that burned over area, the place where the fire of God's wrath has already touched down and, and been punished for sin. And if we're in Jesus, the fire of God's wrath will not touch us. It will burn as it were around us because it will not burn a second time where it is already burned. And Jesus will not punish us for our sins. God will not punish us for our sins if he has already punished Jesus for our sins. Jesus is the safe place from the just wrath and fire of God's wrath. But now let's consider the next verse, the necessity of being salt being salt or salt being salty. Verse 50 says, first part, salt is good, but if salt if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? The necessity of salt being salty. Let's look at the physical reality. Salt is good, the Greek word kalos, which means excellent. Excellent in its nature and characteristics and well adapted to its end. Do you know what makes salt good or excellent in the natural realm? Is because salt differs in its properties from that into which it is rubbed. Salt has different properties. Meat is subject to decay, to putrefaction, but salt isn't. So if you rub salt into meat, the meat will be kept from decay because salt has different properties than the meat. But if salt becomes unsalty, Jesus says, with what will you make it salty again? Salt is distinct and unique. There's nothing to salt salt. Now, that was a physical reality. Sometimes the sea from the, the salt, rather, from the Dead Sea could become unsalty. In the marshes and lagoons, it would mix with gypsum and other chemicals, and it would become stale and insipid. It was possible physically for salt to become unsalty. And Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, if salt is unsalty, it's, it's useless. It's good for nothing. But what's the spiritual reality here? Jesus is saying that his people are characterized by saltiness. And as salt, they are to be different from the world they are called to exert influence upon. If they are not different from the world, they are useless. If salt does not differ from the meat into which it goes, it will do no good. But salt does good because it has distinct qualities. And likewise, we as God's people, as salt, we need to be different from that into which we are rubbed, namely the world. And you go back to the context here. Here the apostles are being trained to go into the world with a transforming message. They were called upon to call people away from a self-centered life, 
a selfishly ambitious life and call them to live for God and for other people in the gospel. And yet, what were they doing? They were all consumed with with, uh, selfish ambition themselves. They were being unsalty salt at that point. Jesus says, you need to cut off your hand and foot or pluck out your eye. You need to deal radically with sin. The world does not deal radically with sin, does it? A person in the world, if their eye says covet, they covet. If their eye says lust, they lust. If their hands say steal, they steal. If their feet say go to this unsavory place, they go. The world knows nothing of dealing radically and ruthlessly with sin. People in the world, and that was once us, we loved our sin. We wallowed in our sin. But disciples are to be different when it comes to sin. They're to cut off the hand and the foot and pluck out the eye. And as such, they're to be salt, distinct from the world. That's why they need to remain salty. What should we apply? How should we apply this to ourselves? Well, I think this truth that salt is good, but if it becomes unsalty, it can't be made salty again. It's useless if salt becomes unsalty. I think the first truth that emerges is that um, every unholy Christian is a false professor. Christians are salty, and, and Christians are willing to deal with sin radically. And anybody who says he's a Christian but has no concern to deal with sin and is, is unsalty is not really a true Christian. And so I think it exposes every unholy, unsalty professor as just that, a professor and not a possessor. But this truth of the necessity of salt being salty also calls us to examine ourselves for unsaltiness. If you're a Christian, you are salty. You are the salt of the earth. God has made you such. But can we not all say that there are some areas of our lives which are not as salty as they ought to be? Are there not some areas of our lives where we're not as distinct from the world as we should be? And so it calls us to examine ourselves and say, is there anything in me that's worldly, that's, that's not salty? You know, the world is fond of grumbling and complaining, right? You hear it all the time in your workplace. Are we unsalty in that same way? Or are we distinct in giving thanks to God in all things and not being like the world and being perpetually complaining and, and grumbling? Um, the world loves to gossip. They love to talk people down. Uh, Are you unsalty in that area? Are you participating in gossip or generating gossip and being unsalty and and like the world? The world loves to engage in foolish banter and unclean joking. We're to be salt in the consciences of those who have foul mouths and foul minds. We're not to enter in with them and be unsalty. We're to be salt distinct from them and being a burr in their conscience. So we do well to consider Even though you are salty, if you're a Christian, are there areas of my life that are less than as salty? Or am I too much like the world in some areas of my life? And we need to seek God in repentance and grace to be saltier salt. But then finally, we have here the duty of having salt in yourselves. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? And then he closes by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. First of all, the command 
to have salt in yourselves. Be salty within yourself. You see, saltiness is not only something that God makes us, but it's a command for us to follow. We are responsible to be salty. What is a salty person? Well, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world. Prior to that, in what we know as the Beatitudes, Jesus described the character of the citizens of his kingdom. These are the descriptions of his people in the Beatitudes. And note how these, I think, characterize saltiness in the Christian that makes the Christian distinct from the unsalty world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poverty of spirit, humility, makes you salty in a world that is filled with pride and arrogant conceit. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn over sin, for they shall be comforted. Mourning over your sin, repenting of your sin, confessing of your sin, your sin makes you salty in a world that is callous to sin, cavalier about sin, little sensitized to sin. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. The word meekness means one not claiming his rights. How salty that makes you in a world that is so obsessed with their rights and obsessed with their entitlements, and you're going through life realizing you have only one right, and that would be the right to judgment in hell. If you were to demand your right, you don't want to demand your right. We live by mercy, not what we deserve. How different from the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They shall be filled. How salty that makes you in a world that is hungry for for anything else besides righteousness. They're hungering for pleasure, for profit, for ease, for power, for prestige. But we hunger for righteousness. That makes you salt in the earth. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, merciful, not dealing harshly with others, not even giving them what they deserve because God hasn't given us what we deserve. How salty is that in a world that is harsh and cruel for us to be merciful? Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Purity of heart, a single-minded pursuit of God amidst a lot of hypocritical nominal religion, that makes you salty. Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the children of God. To be a peacemaker, to have peace with God, to have peace within, and to be one who is peaceable in your relationships. What a contrast to a world bent on strife and division. That makes you very salty. And then Jesus goes on to say, Blessed are you when men revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you wrongly for my sake. Great is your reward in heaven. They, prof they did the same to the prophets. And when we maintain bold proclamation of the gospel in the face of hostility to our message, that also makes us salty. So Jesus is saying, yeah, God has made you salt, but you are responsible to be salty. Have salt in yourselves. And we need to cultivate these graces. But then, finally, the final phrase is, and be at peace with one another. How does that relate? Well, not only are we to be salty within, we are to be salty between ourselves, among ourselves. Salt refers to inward graces of the heart, but the inward graces of the heart always express themselves outwardly. 
We are to be peaceable in our relationships. And this, in the context of disciples who were not being very peaceable, they were competing, which one of us is greatest? Not for being very peaceable toward this man who's casting out a demon in Jesus' name. Well, he's not one of us. We try to prevent him. They were not being very peaceable in their relationships. And Jesus said, salt not only means grace within, but it means graciousness in your relationships. How often we are called to pursue peace. Romans 14, 19, pursue peace um, and pursue the things that make for peace and the building up of one another. In Ephesians 4, Paul tells us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And how do we do that? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, diligent to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we have in this final point, the duty to be salty. What is, how does this apply to us? Well, it says that sanctification is in part our responsibility. Yes, God works in us, but Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation as God works in us. And God wants us to cultivate salty graces in our lives. And I ask you, what are you working on now? What salty grace is God seeking to develop in you now, right now? Can you point to something? If I were to ask you or someone were to ask you, what is God working on in your life now? What grace is he refining? How is he making you more salty in your character now? Could you point to something? Yeah, God is helping me to be more patient with my husband, patient with my wife, patient with my children. God is helping me to be more forbearing, more forgiving. God is helping to, to rein in my, my temper. God is, is helping me to be more bold in my witness. What, what is God working on to make you more salty within and then God expects us to cultivate social graces. Not talking about mismanners here, but we're talking about becoming a more pers personable and peaceable person in our relationships. Are you becoming more salty in your relationships? Are you becoming a more agreeable person, a more pleasant person, an easier to approach person, an easier to get along with person, less easily provoked to anger, less cantankerous, less snooty, less more warm, more engaging, more other-oriented. Be at peace among yourselves. We are to be salty not only within, we are to be salty among ourselves in our relationships. And the gospel depends on it. Jesus said that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that the world may believe that you sent me. As we become more peaceable in our relationships, it convinces the world, maybe God did send his son to reconcile men to himself because I see people reconciled to one another. I see people having sweet relationships to one another. That should be the impact of unbelievers when they come in to any biblical church and they see people relating to one another peaceably and lovingly and warmly. And they say, there, there's a different climate here than I see in the cutthroat environment out there. These people have peace among themselves. They, they love each other. They even like each other. And they're getting along with each other and they're deferring to one another. Preaches the gospel to them that there's a God who sent his son to reconcile men not only to God, but to one another. And for all of this, he expects us to depend not on ourselves, but on his grace. John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, may we be looking to the Lord Jesus as we pray, as we read his word, as we fellowship with his people to make us more salty 
as Christians within ourselves and among ourselves to the glory of God and to the use, greater usefulness in his kingdom.